Hello everyone, it's August 27th, 2019. This week the ISS does some shuffling around of Soyuz due to a failed autonomous docking system. And we have a data relay about hot structures that is very cool. Sorry for the ironic pun or whatever you call that. Let's do the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 225 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So tomorrow is supposed to be that Starhopper test, and that's in the, the blackout zone of the show. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can't talk about it. We can't talk about it because it hasn't happened yet, not because we obey yeah. any embargoes. We make some predictions. It'll look awesome. <laughs> yeah. I predict it. I'm going to predict that it will happen, but I'm going to predict it. I'm going to predict it won't happen. And that way we'll be right one way or the other. There yeah. Okay. Go. There you go. But uh, okay. Um, I said, we don't obey embargoes. We will. Imp- if somebody wants to give us news that we're not allowed to talk about, we don't talk about it. And that happens all the time. I, I don't want to make it sound like we just talk about anything. So yeah. If you want to send mm-hmm. us something cool, feel free to do it. We're just not right for this event. We're not obeying an embargo. Right. 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 Well, because yeah, there hasn't been any set, so right. I think uh, we're all free to talk about it. Right, right, right. That was nice and quick. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history, and we have a long list of winners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, Ben Haller, HC Science, Cy Kyle, Matt Ellis, Joel Repka, Damon, Dylan, Tompkins, Jason Friesen, and Chubby Chakosi all guessed correctly. Thank you guys so much for guessing. Um, I want to give a quick apology to both HC Science, uh, who was posting the, a couple of uh, correct guesses that my uh, my bot or it's actually an if that if this and that integration um, didn't catch for some reason and I can't figure out why but it got this one from this week so I'm I'm really sorry and then uh, Damon actually emailed us because um, we were missing those tweets because it was a private account <laughs> so hmm. uh, I'm glad that we were able to get this time uh, so sorry folks we, uh, we try our best. But, you know, this is difficult. Um, so the clue from last week was MMR is important. David, you thought that you recognized those letters but couldn't quite connect it. Uh, I'm assuming now. because the context was weird and that was kind of my intention. <laughs> but a lot a lot of people got it. So this week in Spaceflight History is the 30th of August, 1931. It was the birth of Jack Swigert. So should be a, a pretty familiar name. Uh, he got a BS in mechanical engineering, an MS in aerospace engineering, and then a second MS in business administration. And then uh, he also got a bunch of honorary doctorates after he went to space. So after college, he went straight into the U.S. Air Force. um, And while he was there, he accrued over 7,200 flight hours, which is insane. And most of that was in jets, just very prolific uh, pilot. Um, So he applied for the second astronaut selection and the third and failed both times, but he was accepted to the fifth astronaut class. And he is one of the few people who actually requested, one of the few Apollo astronauts who uh, actually requested to be the command module pilot. My guess is that, you know, there's the calculus, well, not a lot of people want to be the command module pilot. So if you mm-hmm. put your name in the hat, you're more likely to go to space. Um, that, that seems pretty reasonable. Famously, um, Swigert flew on Apollo 13. Uh, so a quick overview of, of what happened. Basically, it was originally supposed to be Ken Mattingly uh, as the command module pilot, but then the entire crew uh, was exposed to rebella. So Charles Duke got sick through one of his children and, you know, basically was in the proximity of everybody involved in the space program. <laughs> and all six of the primary and backup crew members were exposed to Charles Duke's uh, sickness seven days before launch was supposed to happen. Um, so out of those six people, only Mattingly was not immune to the disease, right? He hadn't gotten it as a child, uh, and, and so he he was potentially going to get sick. So this is kind of where the clue came from. The MMR vaccine is is a group vaccine that's for mumps, um, measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, that's what we use today to stave off rubella. Uh, and uh, just to point out... Um, the rubella component of the MMR vaccine wasn't developed until 1967. So like this was like, it had literally only been a thing recently when, when they got sick. Um, so anyway, uh, Ken Mattingly ended up not getting sick, so they didn't need to pull him off of the mission. But what's interesting is that they pulled one person off of the primary crew instead of just swapping out the entire primary crew for the backup crew. Kind of an odd decision. Uh, I don't think that has ever really happened at least in you know early u.s space flight 
Uh, we we've done that for shuttle flights, but that's you know, it's a bit a bit more routine to to do shuttle missions than to do Apollo missions. So he flew on Apollo thirteen and then never flew again. He was actually assigned to the Apollo Soyuz test project, but uh, was pulled from that because he was involved in the Apollo fifteen postal covers scandal. So if if you're not familiar, basically uh, David Scott Alwarden and Jim Irwin uh, were on Apollo fifteen. They were approved to take like 150 postage stamps on uh, like special commemorative envelopes that were signed. Um, it's called a postal cover. They were approved to take somewhere, you know, 140, 150. And then they took extra, specifically David Scott and Jim Irwin uh, took a bunch extra, um, like two or three times that amount. And they took them unapproved and they took them in order to sell them. They were actually being paid to do so, which everybody agreed was was not cool so they were supposed to be the backup crew for apollo 17 but they were pulled uh none of them ever flew again and so swigert uh, obviously wasn't on apollo 15 but it turns out that not only was he involved to some extent but he also lied about being involved um, so he was pulled from astp and he also never flew again and then uh, just end of life, he was uh, elected to Congress as a representative from Colorado. Uh, but unfortunately, he died from cancer before being sworn in. He died like two weeks before he was supposed to be sworn in. So there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. I have a clue for next week. So next week in 1914, the clue is, you know what might have killed Swigert? Okay, oh. and that's the next week in 1914. <laughs> well, these are just getting... Yeah, we're, we're chaining them together. 1914. Yeah, we're going way back. I'm going to guess it's uh, Swigert's father who might have, you know, got pissed at him or something. <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah, the birth of Swigert's father. You, you, you got it right. Sorry, I'm going to have to pick another one. <laughs> yeah, no idea. Okay, well, all right. Good clue. Uh, I'm sure we'll have some right answers, but I myself, I have no idea. But uh, if you think you know, just tweet us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So, in the news, there was an uncrewed Soyuz, and it was supposed to be docking at the International Space Station, and that did not happen. So, there was an abort on that docking. And actually, can I can I just uh, interject here? Does it qualify as uncrewed when okay, it has yeah. uh, Fedor, oh Fedor when on there? there's a nightmare on, there, on board? Yeah. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah, there is a Terminator on board, so... There is? Yeah, there is. Okay, sorry, I just wanted to get the ruling on that. Yeah. So, yeah, this was uh, the MS-14 uh, mission. It was supposed to have docked autonomously, but something was going wrong, and then on station, they didn't know what that was, uh, so they had to issue an abort. And I think it's interesting, one thing that I had read, I don't know if this is, like, official, but I guess we could figure this out, uh, is that they couldn't see the Soyuz approach. So I guess that's kind of unnerving, like, when you can't see a, a spacecraft that's, you know, supposed to be doing something, and it's just not doing it. You don't know where it is, because mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to get rammed, which I believe almost did happen aboard Mir with a Soyuz. It did. Ha it yes. actually did happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. It did happen. You're right. Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking. So this totally did happen before. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think I can see why they issued that abort. Yeah. So this is supposed to be using the Kurs or Kurs, K-U-R-S, which I, which I don't remember what that, that's like a Russian acronym, isn't it? It's a, oh, it's a think Russian it's an acronym. acronym. It's a docking mm -hmm. system. It's a docking system, but I don't know. No, I don't think, I think it just is, it's course. It just course. means course. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I only just had seen it, not all caps. And that's why I figured yeah, it wasn't an acronym. It's... I always thought it was an acronym. So. Well, you would think that they would make one up because you know, right. that's what you do. <laughs> uh, okay. So, yeah, the course docking system. Um, there was an issue with a signal amplifier. So, I guess this broadcasts to the Soyuz capsule exactly what its position is. I'm not sure exactly what it does. I mean, it's obviously a signal amplifier, but mm -hmm. exactly what it's relaying, I'm not sure. And I, and I also don't know why everything would have been okay initially and then what was it about getting this close that suddenly uh it, it became an issue right because uh, be, things were proceeding be, because, normally right because course is only used during the final approach yeah ah, so so that's like that explains that. for alignment and range finding okay um, and yeah you don't need that when you're you know farther away from from the station uh sam in the chat says that course actually might have conked out entirely i, I don't know exactly how much it is dead but they're certainly not gonna do automated uh docking on this docking port so it sounds like we might need some uh percussive maintenance at minimum and 
uh, hardware replacement at, at worst. You said percussive maintenance. What does that mean? It's when it you go out and bang on it. Yeah, ah. <laughs> I figured, but I was just making sure. <laughs> yeah, the old hit it with a hammer technique. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so if they had to replace this, that is outside the module, right? Yes, it is. Mm. Yeah, and it's not a super great place to get to either. But that was called off. But that was supposed to have been done by uh, the two cosmonauts on board. But I guess that uh, they had changed their mind. Well, not them, but it was determined that it couldn't have been repaired. Or maybe, as was pointed out, uh, the whole system just conked out entirely. So maybe it's a mm -hmm. much larger problem than uh, they had first thought. Yeah, this stinks. Yeah. So the backup plan is to go to a different module and dock there because uh, the core system apparently is running on the Zvezda module. Uh, but that currently is occupied by the previous Soyuz. So they have to move that one. So the idea is to instead, you know, sort of like fly that one over to uh, Poisk. Poisk. <laughs> they can dock that one manually because you'll have a human occupant. And then they can do the autonomous docking to the Zvezda module. So that's the solution, which um, they've had to do in the past. So I guess that's not too big of a deal. And much easier than a spacewalk, but they are still going to have a problem, I guess, in terms of future logistics if they can't do autonomous docking. And I, think, I, I always think this moving around is really, really cool. So I'm, <laughs> I think it's pretty sweet. Okay, so I have a source, I have a source from NASA on their blogs. It says, um, uh, in the meantime, Russian controllers informed Expedition 60 Commander Ovinchin and Skortsov they will send instructions to swap the signal amplifier of the station's KERS docking system and test it before proceeding with another docking attempt. And so I don't know if that if that means an EVA or if that's something they can do on the inside of the of the station. If only we had a, a space station person handy who we could tweet at, but that's okay. So I guess we're not sure if there was ever a repair planned or at least a spacewalk. So possibly this could have been taken care of from inside station. Sam in the chat is kind of saying, saying what I'm thinking. He's saying uh, the electronics probably aren't outside the pressure vessel. The Russians still mostly have to import space rated electronics. So yeah, it, it, seem, it seems kind of weird to put everything on the outside of the pressure mm -hmm. vessel. And it, it would be crazy to do an EVA on such short notice. Um, sure, but it sounds sure, like they're sure. not. And that, that part was a bit perplexing to me. Like, well, yeah, why would they do right. that when you could just move mm -hmm. a Soyuz, you know? Yeah. That did seem odd. But yeah, as, as far as I can tell from the tweets in Russian, it looks like that they were having like meetings to determine how to fix the situation, but they didn't necessarily implement them or even begin to. They were just, you know, discussing if they could have this fixed onboard station. So... I yep. guess that's as far as they got. So instead, they're just going to move the previous Soyuz from its current spot at Zviesta and put that at uh, the Paisk module and then play musical chairs with Soyuz capsules <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> kind of sucks to have to shuffle around, but you know. Most Soyuz capsules are crewed, though. I do recall reading that this is pretty rare because obviously if you're going to be sending up any kind of supplies, you do that on some other spacecraft because like Soyuz is for people. Well, no, you, you, fly, can... you fly supplies on Soyuz as well. But it's you plan Soyuzes around people and then pack in whatever goods you need. But, right. but yeah, we well, haven't. That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, we haven't flown an uncrewed Soyuz from the ground. Ah, oh, this might Since be like the, 80s, the second time. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's really Long unusual. Time. But um, we do uncrewed undocking and redocking of Soyuzes. That that's happened at least once. And yeah, uh, Sam in the chat's mentioning, we, we talked about this last uh, last week, but it's worth mentioning. The reason this is uncrewed is because it was the first time putting a, a Soyuz capsule on top of a Soyuz 21A. And so they mm -hmm. wanted to test it because um, there was uh, the potential for the, the flight abort system activating during the roll program. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. I guess my basic point is that this is pretty rare. So if they don't fix the course module, how much is that going to impact the operations of yeah. the station? Because it's not going to be great. Well, but I mean, like most of the time, they're going to have people on board the Soyuz spacecraft so they can do a manual docking, right? So yeah. is it that big of a deal? Or do we have to worry about other things like, you know, progress coming in? Uh, do they dock at the same? Yes, they do. Yeah. yeah. And I, progress and that be a problem. You're absolutely right. That's what you got to be worried about. Uh, it, it's something that'll get fixed. I mean, it's it's not great to do manual dockings all the time. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Sam mentions that that Progress does have a, a manual docking system. It's like a like a remote control, and, and they have used that fairly recently. Right. Mm -hmm. we I don't remember what that. it was for. Yeah, but it, Good you point. know. It's really nice to be able to do the automated docking and not have to worry about mm -hmm. it. So in the worst case, they can still fly it in remote control and do a manual or a remote but manual docking. <laughs> <laughs> I guess at some point they're going to have to fix this and that will might 
probably require a spacewalk. I, uh, I think it's unlikely to require a spacewalk. We'll, we'll see, though. I mean, we, we just don't have that information right now. We'll probably have a short and sweet in the coming weeks where we'll finally be able to point <laughs> to what the issue is. <laughs> right. <laughs> Moving on to short and sweet, three of them this week, and what's our first one? First up, Astrobotic chooses ULA's Vulcan Centaur rocket to deliver its lunar lander. Astrobotic announced that it has signed with United Launch Alliance to fly its Peregrine lunar lander aboard a Vulcan Centaur rocket, winning a $75.9 million contract earlier this year as part of the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Agreement. The private company will deliver up to 14 payloads to the lunar surface, with 16 customers already signed up. The launch will take place from SLC-41 in Cape Canaveral in 2021. And secondly, Sierra Nevada selects ULA. Sierra Nevada Corporation announced on August 14th that its Dream Chaser will be launching aboard ULA's Vulcan. The first launch is scheduled for late 2021 for delivery of cargo to the ISS, and all SNC has a contract for six missions to station. The Vulcan will launch Dream Chaser within a 5-meter fairing atop a two-engine Centaur upper stage and a first stage with four solid boosters. Dream Chaser will be able to deliver more than 5,000 kilograms of cargo to the ISS and bring back over 3,000 to Earth with a runway landing at Kennedy Space Center. And finally, Europa Clipper passes key decision point C. Europa Clipper has settled two issues encountered during its development and has now passed NASA's key decision point C. We reported in April that one of the cost overrun drivers was the custom magnetometer, which has since been replaced with a facilities instrument. A report months later found another concern for the program, a potential shortage of personnel as four other major JPL-led missions are currently being developed, but that issue has largely been resolved. Still unresolved is whether SLS will be ready to launch a spacecraft in 2023 or 2025, with the White House contemplating the use of a commercial rocket, which would add years to the journey. All right, the data relay this week is hot structures. That is a hot topic, and we have Ben Cruz here to talk with us. Uh, so I guess before we go any further, just explain exactly what is a hot structure. Yeah, we can jump right in here. So I, I have my my documents kind of outlined the basic concepts, uh, and then I'm going to go over some of the historical use. And then if we haven't taken up like three hours talking about all of this stuff by <laughs> the time I'm through, we can maybe talk about uh, near future uses of it. So that be starship but basics of hot structure so when when things heat up just in general we can let it burn or we can reflect that heat away or we can absorb it that's basically all you can do hot structure is going to be when we absorb the heat and reflect it back so when an object gets hot uh, it starts to radiate heat and the amount of radiation that it that it can radiate back is proportional to the temperature of the body itself that's called the Stefan Boltzmann law for black body radiation. So you want you want to get a very hot body so you can radiate heat away because the whole concept here is that you want you want your structure to basically negate the need for an additional thermal protection system. So the this is one of the more official definitions that I found here a a hot structure system is a multifunctional structure that can reduce or eliminate the need for a separate thermal protection system or TPS. And that's kind of what I think of like being the main distinction because like there's not a heat shield. Yeah, that's that's the whole point and and why you would want to do that would would be to reduce the mass of, of your overall system so that would give you increased mission capability, it would uh, improve your aerodynamics sometimes. Uh, it can improve your your structural efficiency which just kind of goes along with with uh, how much load you can take. And it can uh, increase your ability to inspect the structure. So most people consider hot structure a an enabling technology for reusability. Uh, so right now, uh, most people know about this now, and uh, it's it's of interest in the spaceflight community because of SpaceX's Starship. Uh, it it has been used before. In fact, NASA scientists considered it the ideal technique for reentry, and that was before manufacturing made disposable heat shields cheap enough. So before we could make uh, phenolic resins and ablative heat shields like we used on uh, what that would be Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Bef- before those heat shields came about, NASA scientists were, were considering hot structure and not using a heat shield at all. Hmm. So let me ask actually a quick basic question. So one thing I'm wondering, right, is that you have the outer skin of the spacecraft or like the aircraft, but I'm guessing you would still have to have a fairly robust substructure because... 
heat is still going to be transmitted, right? Like at, you know, still temperatures that are not a human being couldn't survive and probably a lot of other electric components. So how do you do that? Because it seems to me that like, what's the difference between a, well, I do understand the difference between a heat shield and then, you know, having an actual, the actual skin of the spacecraft being a hot structure. But how do you negotiate that issue? The issue of internal temperature? Mm. I have some idea. I've you know, read a little bit about the SR-71. I think it's the SR-71, or maybe I'm thinking of some other aircraft, but you do have expansion, and then you have the substructure, which has to not move, and it has to be heat-resistant to some degree. So you're, you're skipping ahead a little oh, bit, okay. but, <laughs> but it's, good. it's good to talk about here. So when, when we think of something like uh, the SR-71 or the Concorde, that's going to be a supersonic flight. So I, I have it listed here that it's not exactly the same phenomenon as what we're talking about for hot structure, but you will get, you'll, you will get thermal expansion as metals or anything. As anything heats up, it will expand. And how much it expands is based off a parameter that we call the coefficient of thermal expansion or CTE. So the SR-71 and the Concorde, they were noted to have significant thermal expansions when they were flying because of the aerodynamic heating. So the, the Blackbird famously leaked fuel on the ground because it was designed for supersonic flight. So it's, it's something to consider even if you're not, if you're not going into this hypersonic or and or orbital reentry sort of uh, flight regime, but it's, it's, it's something to design for even if you're just in supersonic flight. So when we're talking about hot structure, if we're going to have one material that's taking the structural load and that's getting heated up to these really high temperatures, we're going to have to use some sort of super alloy. So it's, it's notable that super alloys that are designed for this use are going to have lower uh, CTEs than your typical aerospace alloys. So here I have, just to throw out some numbers, um, the alloy that was used for the dinosaur program, it's known as Rene 41. Its CTE at its max operating temperature was about 17, 18, and that's at a temperature of 1,000 degrees Celsius or 1,100 degrees Celsius. Your typical aerospace aluminum, instead of 18, it's going to have a CTE of about 25. So it's going to expand a lot more, and that's at a much lower temperature. So that's where you get into the material science that supports this type of, of engineering is that you, you have to get an alloy that's going to be strong and that isn't going to expand too much so that you have to leak fuel on the ground like, like the Blackbird. I found this interesting quote too before we move on that uh, it was in a NASA report that was talking about this type of design. And, and I thought this was cool. Uh, I thought this was interesting. So, so quote, one of the key issues regarding the feasibility of this type of advanced orbital vehicle is the ability to integrate the propellant tankage with load carrying structure. Thus, the propellant is contained by aerodynamically shaped structure rather than more conventional cylindrical pressure vessels. So what we often hear people online talking about is box within box. This is kind of coming up with that concept in the 50s, I think. You, you need to be very efficient and not have a box within your box if you want to have hot structure. So it's quite good at radiating heat back out, right? Because you don't want to heat up your fuel. That seems almost like miraculous to me that that could be possible. Well, it's definitely difficult to design for. So that's one of the things that we'll, we'll get to here is, is that it's, it's really difficult to design this type of spacecraft because you have to consider your, your propellants, your external temperature. You're going to have a huge thermal gradient between those. Mm -hmm. Uh, you need to keep your propellants cold so that they're dense, so that you have the combustion that you need. You need to take all of the aero load, all of that. So it all gets rolled up together. It makes it very complicated to design stuff like this. But the payoff is that you have a reusable and very efficient vehicle. So most of what we're talking about is going to be hypersonic flow. In hypersonic flow, fluid is compressed and a shock wave develops at the, we call it, well, it would be bow shock, but starts at the stagnation point, the shockwave develops, extreme aerodynamic heating occurs, and the flow is actually independent of aerodynamic coefficients. Aerodynamic coefficients. You're moving so fast that it doesn't matter how shaped your, your vehicle is. Hypersonic heating regime occurs roughly between speeds of 18,000 and 22,000 feet per second. And for international listeners, that is about 6.7 kilometers per second. Very, very fast flying. Now, I, I mentioned up the top that there's multi we don't have to radiate the heat away. We don't have to burn it away. We could try and soak it up. And you may be thinking, uh, like with 
with uh, my CPU, I have a heat exchanger. There's, there's a bunch of fins and it absorbs the heat from that and then convection happens, but it, it absorbs that heat first. Maybe thinking, why can't we just fly a, a large enough vehicle made of thick enough steel that it can just absorb all of that heat? And what you end up seeing is that you can't actually absorb the heat fast enough at these speeds. Mm-hmm. You start to actually burn the exterior surface before you can actually transmit that heat through. So the thermal diffusivity of pretty much any material is such that heat cannot be soaked or absorbed fast enough by the inner layers to prevent the outer layer from melting. So it's independent of the thickness that you have because we're talking about so much heat that's being dumped into your spacecraft. That's terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Like that, that is like viscerally scary. So to give you an idea of how much heat we're talking about, the thermal sink effect is going to be limited to a total heat load of 100,000 BTU per square foot. Um, and again, for international listeners or for anyone really, it's hard to understand what that number means because that is both a very large number and not large enough to actually sink all of this. So that that's enough heat from just one square foot of your spacecraft to increase the temperature in a 1500 square foot apartment by 42 degrees Fahrenheit. And for international listeners, that's a decently sized uh, two bedroom apartment going from very cold to unbearably hot. That is wild. <laughs> Lots of heat. From one square foot. From Yes, yeah. from one square foot. It That's if, my, if I've done my math right. I did check that, but somebody on the internet will correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> it's a lot of heat. So we, we mentioned supersonic use case. Uh, I won't go back on that, uh, but not as interesting as this hypersonic case. In the hypersonic regime, we've we've had projects like Dinosaur, like HyperX, uh, going a little bit faster than that. We even have orbital reentry cases from the dinosaur studies and then actually from the shuttle orbiter. And then beyond orbital reentry, we're not going faster, but it's there's a little uh, a little bit of a different use case when you're going through deep space. So it's it's similar to supersonics where you don't have that kind of, of heating from hypersonic. But in deep space, the only external heat transfer is by radiation. You're in hard vacuum. Mm-hmm. So when you have a spacecraft flying through deep space, you'll likely need additional radiators. But if you have a liquid-cooled hot structure, you may be able to just use the entire structure as a radiator. So it if you're going to build a hot structure for reentry, it might be advantageous for you to also design it deep space flight. It could help you out there too. Just a oh, thought. Okay, so that raised the question for me. I I was under the impression that even in like a you know a dinosaur example uh, coming through the atmosphere on orbital reentry, that it would still be radiation uh, would be the way to uh, for the hot structure to get rid of that heat. Is it also removing some by convection? It's not convection. It's more, the general concept is called mass transfer cooling. So you're, it's, it's more of getting a phase change out of what you have, either using a closed loop heat exchanger or using this open loop sort of transpiration cooling idea. So convection would be actually, you won't get convection because the flow around your vehicle is so hot that it's, it's plasma and you, you won't be able to dump any heat out to that flow. Mm -hmm. You can introduce more film cooling from any mass that you have on board. Okay. I think that's most of the basic concepts of this. Um, If you guys are on board with me here, then we'll step into some of the historical use cases. All right. The first uses that I could find were from ICBMs. Uh, If you think about even before ICBMs, you think about a V1 or a V2, the the nose cones of those missiles were uh, most likely some type of steel or aluminum. They were just thin metallic sheet metal, where kind of where you have the warhead. Once you start stepping up into larger missiles, the engineers or designers at the time of those missiles wanted to have a faster ballistic reentry. So they wanted to go faster through the atmosphere when they were coming back down, and they needed to design their nose cones so that it could handle that heat load. So the original nose cones for these ballistic missiles were actually made of copper, but they either used a heat sink design or an ablative design. They'd maybe paint the copper or just ablate away some of the copper if you're moving fast enough. That's the the first case that I could really find of of anything really talking about this this type of, of heat transfer in, in flight. That's exciting as is, but then we move into what most people may be thinking about here, 
you're either thinking about Dinosaur or you're thinking about the X-15. So the X-15 was famously the rocket plane that uh, it rode up on a B-52 and then it was air launched to suborbital flight. The X-15 used a monocoque and semi-monocoque construction depending on where on the fuselage it was. And the, the construction was uh, an outer layer of in-canal and then it was separated if we're just let's just talk about the cockpit here. The outer layer was was in canal. There was some insulation, and then there was an aluminum or titanium inner layer. So the rest of that specific area in the cockpit would have been what we may refer to as a warm structure. So the in canal on the outside wasn't taking all of the structural load, but it was taking all of the heat load. And then you have the insulation just to keep the pilot from burning up. Uh, there's actually, I've linked to the design challenge document for the X-15, and uh, there's a couple good figures around figure 10 and 11, where you can see exactly what I'm talking about, where it's, it's broken up the cockpit between the wing boxes and the stabilizers, and you can see the, the double wall construction, is what they call it. The wings and the, and the tail were what I would probably classify as, as pure hot structure. And they just had Inconel on the outside that would take everything. And then you have some titanium on the inside just to kind of take anything else. But there was no insulation. And you can see the locks and fuel tanks just integrated right in there. Mm -hmm. It's crazy that we shoved a person inside of this thing. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's one picture where it shows, well, there's a couple where it shows a, a pilot inside. And it, it just looks ridiculous. I can't imagine us doing anything like this today. Anyway, the X-15 is cool. And then in between the X-15 and the dinosaur program, there were some theoretical studies. Uh, let's see, this is 1963 by the Department of Defense. They did a lot of studies on heat shield concepts and materials for reentry vehicles. Uh, one thing that they noted was that they, they, by their calculations, a ceramic super alloy composite heat shield could reduce heat transmission through the structure to approximately 2% during re-entry. Mm. So that would be the heat shield itself taking all of the heat load and it doesn't mention that it's ablative so I assume that it's just taking that in and radiating any of the rest out. That's why it would be a, a super alloy composite. Is ceramic good at that? I thought that ceramic was usually for ablative heat shielding. Ceramics are typically they can take a lot of heat. You think about like a, a brick. Mm -hmm. You can heat up a brick to a very high temperature and once you get beyond that it, it'll start ablating but I think the idea with this was that you have the super alloy mixed with the ceramic so that the super alloy can transmit heat through and the ceramic can can act as a thermal sink mm -hmm. the super alloy once the thermal sink limit has been reached can radiate that the rest of that heat out some more interesting figures here for the the flight regime that we're really talking about Mach number of, of about 12 Temperatures at this point are 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is roughly the temperature of the surface of the sun. Uh, so that's fun. Uh, this, this paper from 1963 was where I first saw the concept described of, of mass transfer cooling, which is, like I mentioned before, just a, a more general method of transpiration cooling. So you take gas of any gas or liquid of, of a high specific heat, and you can inject it at your hot spots or your leading edges of your flow. And then it will transpire, transpirate, and give you a, a cooler protective film that will keep your structure from, from heating up too much. And one of Ben's first questions when he was uh, helping me review this was, well, what, what is a gas of, of a high specific heat? What does that mean? So I was looking some up, and I don't have my units here, but the gases that we'd be talking about would be hydrogen, helium, methane. Hydrogen would be the best, uh, but these these are fuels or gases that you see commonly on rockets anyway. So if, if you have methane and you can you can inject your methane into your flow, it can help you cool and, and negate some of your need for TPS. So that's kind of where this whole concept started from for transpiration cooling was this paper from 1963 by the Department of Defense. And it's, it's kind of a mercy that you don't have uh, units in there because... Uh... The SI unit for specific heat is joule per Kelvin per kilogram, which doesn't 
compute. I, um, yeah, it's, I'm having a it's really hard, hard to, time. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to figure out what that means. I, I think the like verbal definition of it is the amount of energy that you need to increase one unit of mass by one degree yeah, exactly whatever system you're in it gets yeah. complicated from there yeah but in general that's going to be something like hydrogen helium methane yeah it's it's the the energy unit and the temperature unit together that kind of makes that seem inscrutable but once you put it into english yeah that's that's pretty straightforward <laughs> okay so the the ideal way for us to dump a lot of this heat is again through radiation cooling uh, an outer layer of high melting point material is provided. That's where we get our super alloys. The purpose of that outer layer is to reject all of this heat. Uh, the heat radiated, like I mentioned at the top, uh, if we consider it to be a black body, it's proportional to the temperature raised to the fourth power. So we hear the like square cubed law talked about a lot in aerospace and that this is, you, you get even more of an effect by having a higher temperature that you can sustain because it's raised to the fourth power instead of the the cube power. So this is how you're able to deal with 100,000 BTU per square foot, potentially. <laughs> exactly. If you can just sustain that high of a temperature, then hopefully you can you can dump it all out by, by radiating it back. That actually does explain some things about how it all works, because I did not know that. I wasn't aware of that particular law. Um, it seems very counterintuitive to me, so I guess that's why. It's, it's a fun aside, but that's the reason why the coolest stars and hottest stars only differ by you know, maybe a factor of a hundred, but then like the luminosity of stars factors by hundreds of millions between the dimmest and the brightest because of that T to the fourth law. That is interesting because this, the Stefan-Boltzmann law describes radiation across all wavelengths. It's not just limited to infrared or visual. Uh, that's interesting that luminosity changes so much. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's across the board. So getting back to hot structure stuff, this method of heat protection, uh, it's it's not as useful when boundary layer temperatures are extremely high, which would be the case for a non-lifting re-entry. Um, something like a capsule with, with no angle of attack as it re-enters it, or with a perpendicular to the flow, it's not producing any lift. So it's, it's not as useful to use hot structure in those cases. But when you do have lift, you have an extended period of time where you're, you're taking that, that heat. Mm. So you might have a lower heat flux per unit time but over time your heat will be longer and this hot structure is much more efficient in those types of flights and re-entries and that that seems pretty intuitive doesn't it yeah it's it's kind of like in so in Kerbal space program the the heat shields are notoriously like uber efficient and you don't ever need as much heat shielding if you were going to fly a space plane back instead of flying it straight through the atmosphere like you would with your heat shield you might do a couple arrow passes and then roll around a bunch so that you can spread out all of that heating over your your braking. So this is uh this was this was found from the Department of Defense and uh, on the dinosaur program. They discovered this and they started to design the dinosaur with a hot structure approach. So the X-20 dinosaur program began active research and development in November of 1957 with the goal to extend flight capabilities into the high hypersonic and orbital regimes. It was quickly realized that for the flight quarter of this type of vehicle, traditional ablative shields do not function as well, like we just talked about. The overall heat flux is greater, but heat flux rates are lower within their re-entry trajectories. The concept of a refractory heat shield, something, well, this word refractory, for what we're using it for here, it just means that uh, material is resistant to decomposition by heat and pressure or the, the chemical effects of, of, that, of that hypersonic flow. So I'll, I'll mention refractory a couple of times. Just think of it like it's resilient. I think it means something slightly different when you're talking about chemistry, but for our purposes, it's the same. The, uh, the dinosaur structure was fabricated using a nickel-based super alloy called Rene 41. And they, they tested a bunch of super alloys and they found that this was the, the most effective because of the, the availability of the material, its workability, and then how strong it was at those elevated temperatures. Uh, dinosaur's predominant internal structure was designed to make use of thermal expansion by extensive utilization of trusses. So think about a, a steel bridge where you have a bunch of beams connected together and, and they're all supporting the load. That's a, a truss structure. And the dinosaur's design used a truss structure on the inside and then 
these trusses would kind of expand to make it more efficient in, in that flight. So it was it made it even more difficult to analyze, but it was something really cool that the dinosaur program had. The external surfaces of of that system was made of this Rene 41 and it was what we call corrugation stiffened. So think about a uh, a tin roof or a corrugated cardboard where it's kind of wavy on the inside. That's what the inside of of dinosaur skin would have looked like. Which makes it like rigid in one direction but not in the other, right? So it can expand more in one direction? Yeah, sort of. The the trusses would expand and then the this Rene 41 wouldn't expand as much and the trusses would orient it so that it could take the uh, the arrow and the, the thermal loads. Uh, the materials that we're talking about here would be like exotic alloys like molybdenum or columbium sheet metal if, if it wasn't Rene 41. Uh, they also researched using graphite, ceramic, or some uh, ceramic matrix composites, but they discovered that really all of those resulted in more weight. So they wanted to stick with this Rene 41 hot structure. One thing that the scientists on the dinosaur program discovered is that the external structure wasn't totally effective in preventing an influx of heat into the interior. So when we were talking about the X-15, basically from from the top of the segment here, David asked, "Well, how do you keep the how do you keep the human inside from burning up? If your structure can take a thousand degrees, fine. But how do you keep the human from taking a thousand degrees?" And one thing that they did, uh, both on the X-15 and this dinosaur program, was including insulation there. And that kind of turns it from a pure hot structure into a warm. Uh, but they, they uh, investigated using uh, insulation kind of like what you'd have in your home, just like fiberglass blown insulation or something. Uh, or they also looked at this mass transfer cooling effect. And they decided to, I think their design included the mass transfer system. Of course, it never flew but that was what they were intending to use. Uh, and finally, the I guess the most recent use case that I can find was the X-43 HyperX. HyperX was a demonstrator for hypersonic flight mechanics and scramjet propulsion. Oh, hey, let me let me step us back for a second. Um, so I was looking at Rene 41. It actually does have a real-world use. Uh, the outer shell of the Mercury space capsule was actually Rene 41. Oh. Which is interesting because that was also a corrugated use case. That is interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> I wonder why that capsule was Rene 41 if uh, if the capsule's coming in with a the more ballistic reentry. Why well, are you talking about the heat shield or no not the heat shield, just the side. So just they must the have expected some amount of radiative yeah. cooling from the sides of the spacecraft. I'm gonna have to look up the Mercury capsule after this. Dig into that a little bit more. That's interesting. Yeah, it's funny because they they actually it, it was a deliberate choice because it was actually pretty hard to work with because you could you know hit it with an arc jet like a welder and it wouldn't melt, <laughs> and so um, deciding to use it was a very there's a very deliberate choice there because it's expensive and hard to work with. Mm -hmm. Well, and Rene Forty One was the most workable of the alloys that. Wow. that the dinosaur team looked into. Wow, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I don't have a list of all the others that they evaluated, but we might be able to find that somewhere. But the, the most workable, you can hit it with an arc jet and you, you can't melt it. Super alloys. <laughs> Actually, I'm curious, Ben, do you know like what kind of emissivities this Rene 41 has or the type of things that they have for hot structure? Are you looking more like 99.9% .9 close to a black body or... Not quite that. Uh, I don't know. And, and then, of course, like the shininess of something would would affect the emissivity. And then you'd be far further from your black body radiation. That's that's outside of my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> no, I dig. All right. X-43. Sorry, I, I stepped on you there. Hyper-X. Hyper-X um, was a demonstrator for hypersonic flight. Uh, again, just like X-15 and X-20. Uh, and it demonstrated scramjet propulsion. Hyper-X actually had two test flights. They did one at Mach 7 and one flight at Mach 10. So on this program, there was a heavy focus on hot structure and CMCs, or ceramic matrix composites. And they wanted to use CMCs for the leading edges of the wings, much like the uh, Space Shuttle Orbiter. So they noted that this was, they, they called this integrated airframe structures, uh, and they didn't use the term hot structure, but it's, it's functionally the same. It's functionally very close. It is slightly different. Uh, in the integrated concept will typically consist of laminated composites, and then some layers will provide structural capability while others provide insulation. 
or they provide an ablative heat protection on the outside. So it's one unit, but it's a, a laminated piece, much like the, uh, the X-15 had a, they called it a double wall structure. This would, you wouldn't assemble them together, it would be one piece. And I've noted here that this uh, integrated airframe structure is equivalent to the orbiter belly tiles from the shuttle program. Uh, they, the tiles were bonded to the airframe, uh, whereas the wing leading edges on the orbiter were considered hot structure and they were reusable and did not ablate. The tiles could be removed, they were, maybe they were reusable, but they were just thermal protection as opposed to that leading edge. And that's all I really have for historical use cases. They're a little tricky to find. I didn't look up anything mainly because I don't know how from countries outside of the U.S. I'm sure the Soviets did some research into this, and I'd, I'd be interested to see what exists from other countries if if the listeners know of anything, but that's a summary of the U.S. use of hot structure. Yeah, it's it's such a weird concept. I mean, we we really directly tie reentry, well, spaceflight in general, but you know specifically reentry with heat shielding and ablative heat shielding, and you know, like there, there's been so much cultural focus on the space shuttles heat tiles you know ignoring the rest of the tps uh, on shuttle and the idea of just completely setting aside heat tiles is kind of bizarre but it also makes sense you know from a, from a sci-fi perspective you know we think about all these fictional spacecraft that can re-enter you know enter and leave an atmosphere without you know losing material and they're all, de- I mean, like, you know, the, uh, the shuttles from Star Trek are all depicted as hot structure. You know, you just fly into the atmosphere and you're okay. Um, you know, you'll, yeah, you'll see about some. The, the expanse drop ships where they're <laughs> flying up and down. It's just SSTO and the whole thing just gets yeah. completely reused. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's some nice glowy, flamey effects, but, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that they're not having to replace those tiles. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting to to learn more about the implications of of actually building something like that, and it's cool that it you know you could potentially make everything all one piece, you know. Yeah, and I, I think what what we've kind of learned from this historical use is that if you're gonna have people on board, you kind of need insulation to keep the people from burning up. Uh, you can you can have an outer layer that takes all of that all of that heat and all of that load, but then you have to have something that keeps that from transmitting to the inside of the vehicle yeah and you know to some extent if we're going to do this with uncrewed vehicles you know you still are going to have scientific instruments and other payloads that that are pretty sensitive not as sensitive as humans but you're always going to have to take that into account once you get outside of the experimental space Mm -hmm. and that's warm structure so warm structure is the future (laughs) (laughs) nice warm structure all right so ben can we talk about uh future potential uses of hot structures yeah, so we, we talked about what's real. Now let's speculate. <laughs> Wildly. <laughs> it's it's the best part of all of these data relays is looking up all the stuff that happened and then thinking, ooh, okay, so how is that going to happen in the future? <laughs> um, so most of this we, we kind of already summarized in, in the document here. Uh, I won't go back into that. So in general, to design a hot structure, you want a material that's strong, uh, even at really high temperatures. You want it to carry all the heat and all the pressure. And then you can separate with insulation. So, like I mentioned before, this is most people are really interested in this right now because of SpaceX's Starship. So, the Starship uh, was proposed to be constructed of a stainless steel super alloy, and then uh, Elon originally proposed to use transpiration liquid coolant. Uh, and then, when this was still a concept, uh, Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, had a great video actually showing you what transpiration liquid cooling is. Uh, I believe it's called a sweaty Starship. On YouTube. Mm-hmm. So that was a good video. Now, though, the design looks like it's changed. So mm-hmm. we can we see on on Starhopper we can see some hexagonal TPS tiles of, of some sort. Most people online think that that's probably this tough rock material, which I don't actually know what it is. Uh, supposedly, it's it's some type of it's some type of laminate, but I, beyond that, we don't really know. So it it looks like. The design here might be changing from hot with transpiration cooling to something more like what we saw on the shuttle, where the shuttle had those 
uh, it had hot structure on the leading edges, and then it had the the heat shielding on the belly. So we may see something like that. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but that would indicate kind of like what we've seen here is that it's it's really difficult to design a system like this because you need to know what your reentry profiles are. You need to know what your, your air speeds are. You need to know what your temperatures are going to be. And then you need to know what your emissivity of your material is and how quickly you can radiate that back out. Uh, it's a lot of stuff to figure out. And when you don't have a lot of flight testing under your belt, it's even more difficult to actually design for. Uh, one other notable use, uh, ESA's Skylon SSTO, they've proposed to use a, a hot structure design of some sort. I didn't look up any, any more details on that because that's even more speculative than Starship at this point. We at least see see hardware for Starship. So that's about all I have. Um, anything else would just be ideas of what could be. Brings us pretty much up to where we are present day. Well, great, Ben. Thank you so much. This was uh, this was really informative. I've been waiting a while to get this one up and running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've had the document done for what a, about a month or so now. We've been waiting on Elon. So we'll just get it out there, and then we'll see what changes. <laughs> and before we leave, we have to say thank you to a listener who suggested this topic uh, ages and ages ago, uh, Andrew Zandanaway. So thank you, Andrew. Upcoming spaceflight events, time for that, but we don't have any launches, so just one little thing that uh, Dennis wanted to mention. Yeah, I guess it's an extended event, but uh, on September 1st, the Parker Solar Probe will be reaching its uh, third perihelion of, uh, oh geez, how many it's got going, uh, ultimately for years now but uh yeah so the uh perihelion number three will be on september 1st but what's pretty neat about it this time as opposed to the first two is that they've turned on the instruments a little sooner and so as of this recording it is already taking sort of this you know high-res data uh and so yeah just keep an eye out and keep in mind that it will be doing that for the next couple weeks yeah i tried to make a parker solar probe in uh kerbal and i recognize how (laughs) difficult (laughs) it is (laughs) Okay, well, that that is your upcoming spaceflight event. So let's go ahead and deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. That's all. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.